You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. I will show you around. I'm very, very happy today to have a special guest on our podcast. Uh, my guest is Joseph Gittler, who's chairman and founder of Leket Israel, which uh, I hope for many of my Israeli listeners you're well aware of his organization. If not, uh, you're going to learn a lot about it today. Joseph made Aliyah in 2000, and he worked for three years as the director of international sales and development for a family software business. He founded Leket Israel in 2003 after witnessing significant food wastage in Israel at a time of ra- rising poverty. Joseph succeeded leading the organization from a simple one-man operation to Israel's largest food rescue organization. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm happy to to give uh, full disclosure. I'm a, I'm a contributor to the organization, and I've participated with my staff recently uh, in doing some volunteer work, which uh, we can speak about, but I wanted to get right into it. It's certainly a a issue that uh, I think you can't, if you're a newspaper reader or you consume any type of the Israeli media, uh, we're constantly confronted if it's before Pesach, if it's uh, around another holiday, about how many people, particularly children, are below the poverty line or don't have enough food to eat. Uh, we just recently had this about the Holocaust Survivors Day or, or Holocaust Day, Yom HaShoah, where this issue came up, about 50,000 survivors are living under the poverty line. Uh, and obviously when you're living under the poverty line, you're not eating well, and yet you, you've discovered that there's a lot of food to go around. And maybe you could just give a little background as to how you you dis- made this discovery. Well, I I wouldn't call it my own discovery. I think in in all of our hearts and maybe brains and stomachs, we're all well aware uh, in Western countries where we come from, the U.S., in Israel, Canada, England, that there seems to be this very strange situation where, as a planet, as a country, as a society, we produce actually way more food than is needed, and together with that, at the same time, there are people, even in Western countries, I'm not talking about Haiti or Darfur, poor countries, struggling countries, I'm talking about the wealthiest countries in the world, where you have this strange situation of tremendous wasted food, statistics say up to even 40, perhaps 50% of all food, which is manufactured, grown, cooked, ends up not being eaten. And that's just boggles the mind. So when you put that together with the fact that you have in this modern, capitalist, successful state of Israel, uh, a certain percentage of the population which just hasn't, unfortunately, succeeded in coming along for the ride, that's a situation that I don't think any of us can accept. And in fact, the topic, I'm in this a little over 10 years, the topic of food waste as, as a general topic, an environmental issue, a poverty issue, just a societal issue has finally in the past couple of years taken off to be something that people actually talk about. And that's uh, very gratifying to myself and other activists in this field. Okay, so the, you, you certainly have gotten the word out. 
there's a lot of awareness now. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who are, you know, rescuing food or, or, or food that is rescued getting passed along. What improvements have you seen in, in, in the 11 years or so you've been involved in this? That's a very, you know, that's an interesting question. I have not been asked that uh, before. So I'd like to split it into two. There's the home, okay, your home, my home, our listeners' homes. And then there's industry, okay, and industry, I'm going to say, agriculture in Israel, the Israeli army, but that can be anywhere, uh, restaurants, bakeries, shopping malls, manufacturers, okay? We have, up till now, not really dealt at the home level. And in fact, the statistics say about 50% of all food waste actually happens in the home. You would think the big numbers and the big amounts are at the industrial level, and they are, but only about half of it. And we haven't even touched that, and that's actually something that's bubbling up and like it now is to think about how can we make a campaign uh, so that people will start to think about wasting less in their own homes. That means, um, you know, after Shabbat, saying we prepared so much, we're going to eat leftovers, preparing less, buying less, going to the supermarket more often, buying smaller containers. This is something that we're going to be pushing, we're developing it now, and that's much more of a marketing or a thought change exercise than we've ever done. Up until now, we've very much been a, uh, a logistical operation. And the improvements, it's interesting. I, I can't say that I've seen tremendous improvements from industry, partially because of what food culture is in the West, and partially because there's certain industries where it just can't happen. Let me give you an example. Um, in the catering world, let's say the lunches that are served to workers in corporate cafeterias. Right. I've, I've, uh, I've had the privilege to be invited to some of those lunches. Some of them. Some of your clients probably are in some of those places. So, for example, um, we did outstanding work for many years at Amdocs, which is a very large high-tech company. Now, they, they're outsourcing their food. It's a contractor. They're not cooking it themselves. Uh-huh. They were cooking there about 4,000 meals a day. And we were getting a couple of hundred meals every single day. A new manager came in, and he said, this is crazy. Every day, this organization takes a few hundred meals. Now, on the one hand, that's beautiful because that food is going to feed the poor. But on the other hand, this is our profits dissipating here. We can do this better. Now, it's one thing if they run out of food, but they saw day in, day out that we were taking hundreds of meals. And they just changed the way they do things a little bit. Instead of having the proteins ready when you walked in, they cooked them to order. Mm. So you waited a minute until your chicken or your fish was ready. So we went from getting a couple hundred proteins a day from this one cafeteria to getting next to nothing. Now, for the side of our operation, which is interested in serving food to the poor, that's blow. But for the part of our brain which says, well, we're anti-food waste, that's a success. And that's the tension that's built into all the work that, that Leket and other food rescue organizations do. We only succeed when those producing food actually have too much. I'll give you one other example. We do a lot of work with some of the major dairies in Israel. Mm-hmm. And we see every year how primarily because of technology, better software, better prognosis, they know better every year exactly how much they need to produce. While they're growing as companies, the amount they're giving us is actually lessening each time because they're just getting tighter in their numbers. Again, the bean counters, that's what they want to hear. Right. You know, guys like you who 
who are doing their books. That's exactly what you want. Right. The flip side is less food for us to give to the poor. And that's the tension that we see every day in our work. Where we haven't seen much improvement and we don't expect it is farming. Because farming is such a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to see. You know, if, if, if Tanuva wants to make a million yogurts, make a million yogurts. But when a farmer plants their fields, they don't know exactly what the results are going to be. Is the weather going to be perfect? Is the rain going to cooperate? Are we going to get a cold spell which damages our crops? Even if everything's perfect, what's the price going to be at the end of the day when we're ready to go to market? And so farming, we've just been growing tremendously up to a point where in 2013, we rescued and redistributed 25 million pounds of fruits and vegetables, which in a small country like Israel is an outstanding accomplishment. And we actually, my staff helped. <laughs> in some of that rescue uh, the day we were in, in your logistics center in Renana uh, where that was exactly we were taking we, we took in foods from the fields it was it was very impressive to me the quality of the stuff that came in um, you know it, yeah that's an interesting uh, it's an interesting point we pride ourselves actually the food rescue industry is interesting we get a lot of stuff that is spectacular but we're getting it because prices are bad or because they don't have enough workers, a whole variety of reasons. It's not, I, I, I don't want to malign the farmers, but it's not only out of the goodness of their heart. I promise you, if they could sell it and make money, that's exactly what they would be doing, just like any business would be. But there is something special, and we don't think about it very often, about giving as high-quality food as you and I are able to put on the table. something special about being able to give that level of food to the poor. It's sort of the anti-Marie Antoinette. Right. (laughs) Let them eat. Right. So we're we're proud of that fact, actually. Very proud. No, I I think your comments uh, about the home, particularly at this time of the year when, when, uh, you know, this country had their... uh, Pre pre Pesach pre Passover uh, cleaning out their fridges and probably their post Passover you know when people didn't want to look at this stuff anymore uh, th- there's an ex- extraordinary amount of food wasted and I I'm, I'm thinking something you also mentioned uh, there was we've we've spoken about this in the past there was a program on Arutz Eser I think a few months ago about sure with Mickey about food wasting and one of the things that made a very strong impression on me. I think it was a family in Germany. Uh, they, I think it was a wife, husband, wife, two children, small children, and they had a very small refrigerator. And, and, it, and it necessitated them basically going to the store every single day. Now, as I was a kid a long time ago growing up, that was Sort of the pattern of my grandmother's zichroni bracha. She didn't have a. They didn't have a huge fridge. She had one of those big, heavy, heavy-duty metal fridges. But she basically went shopping every day to several stores. I think she bought what she needed. Uh, she wanted fresh stuff. Um, the problem is, I think I think there's a little, as you said, there's a tension today between people don't have the time to do that shopping. Uh, 
but but on the program it impressed upon me that you really that family really was not wasting any food anymore when they lived that way but on the other hand, people people are so busy I, and i'm not sure if there's some marketing or education one can do as you know how to do their shopping if that's something you've you've confronted well, you know I, I don't think there's any going back on where we are today as a culture you know this family in germany is unique maybe that maybe they're you know like a lot of these movements maybe it'll be a small movement towards that sort of the old Italian model of, you know, of almost not even having a refrigerator because everything was made fresh on a daily basis. And correct, people don't have the time. I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, there are places in the States now where uh, people who want to claim that they're cooking home-cooked meals and that's important to them, they have special industrial kitchens that you can go to where everything's ready for you. All the vegetables are chopped and the noodles are cooked and you're just putting it together so that you can come home and tell your kids, you know, this is a home-cooked meal. So people don't have the time or the interest. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a problem in modern Western society that we're just not going to solve. I, you know, while we could incorporate something like that, we're just trying to get people to think about, you know, what's in their fridge. Right. Okay. Very interesting statistic that you shared with me about how you leverage contributions? With pleasure, yes. You know, Leket, as you can imagine, has many costs. We spend money on trucks and on gas and on insurance and paying drivers to pick up things, and we have a team of pickers who are doing the actual work in the fields. But um, the beauty of our operation is the fact that all the food that we get, all the produce, all the cooked food, the baked goods, the manufactured items, we get them all free of charge. And it may cost us money, of course it costs us money, to send trucks up and pick up 10,000 yogurts. But when you pick up 10,000 yogurts, uh, and it costs you 1,000 shekels to send the truck, and the yogurts are worth 10,000 shekels, that's how you create leverage. So historically, and in all our, it defers a little bit per project, but generally we've been somewhere between 4 and 5 to 1 leverage. And what I mean by that is every dollar we spend on our operations, we produce, so to speak, four or five dollars worth of food. And, you know, just to add to the beauty of that is that a big part of that money is actually going to pay the salaries of our employees. So we take a dollar, we help an Israeli family work, uh, make a living, pay their bills, not be on the dole. You know, none of our, none of our employees are, are Leket recipients. And at the same time, we're helping the environment, we're promoting volunteerism, and most importantly, putting highly leveraged food on the plate of those who are poor. Okay, let me take that, what you just said, the volunteerism part. How, how does that work to, you know, how you need volunteers to make Leckett work? Okay, so we have a couple of projects where we make strong use of volunteers. So number one, you've touched on when you came with your staff, okay, and we get birthright groups, we get army groups, we get school kids, we get bar and bat mitzvahs who are coming on missions to Israel or they're Israeli in the two, to the tune of about 50,000 volunteers over the past year who are coming and helping us clean fields where there is rescuable produce, nutritious, healthy, high-quality stuff. And that's just, you know, if you would divide, if, you would, if, if, if we average one to two hours per volunteer, you're talking 50, 60, 70,000 volunteer hours a year of people picking. That's hundreds of theoretical staff members, if you, you know, did the math into a regular employee, 
for helping us pick in the field. So that's fantastic. We also utilize volunteers to pick up food at night from restaurants, from bakeries, from shopping malls, from catering malls, and people are doing it in their own vehicles. And we send them close. So if you live in Jerusalem, we're going to send you to a Jerusalem area catering hall, and then you will drop off at a Jerusalem area charity. And we will touch on charities in a minute because we didn't talk a lot about that yet. We also have volunteers who make sandwiches for us for needy school children. We have volunteers in our offices. We have volunteers in our warehouses. We make, you know, I wouldn't, if, I wouldn't be shy to say a minimum of 100,000 hours of volunteer time last year, and I think it was probably a little more than that. But we need more. Don't, don't get the wrong idea. So anyone who's listening and wants to volunteer, you know, certainly get in touch with our office. Okay. We're a little country. Again, we, we seem to have a big poverty problem, but one of the nice things about living in Israel is uh, you do hear all the time about how we uh, excel in certain areas. You've been around the world. I know you've mentioned to me you went to a, a conference on the food banks. How do we compare with the rest of the world? Leket is only 10 years old. What we had in Israel before Leket is we had an abundance of what I call the retailers, retail feeding charities, soup kitchens, meals on wheels programs, uh, place after school cups for kids, all those sorts of things. We really have a very widespread and excellent sector doing that kind of feeding. What we were missing was, uh, you know, a middleman, someone who stands in the middle and says, I do nothing but logistics. All I think about is what sources of food are available and how can I get them for as, as efficiently and as cheap as possible. Okay. We started out late in that. That's been going on in the U.S. for 30, 40, 50 years. And the headquarters for that is, I believe, your, your hometown, uh, Chicago, where you have Feeding America, which is sort of the, it's the umbrella for food banks. Okay? Mm-hmm. We in Israel, we don't really need an umbrella for food banks. Leket serves as we are both the umbrella and we're the operator. We do both. So we're talking to the food companies and we're figuring out and we have the trucks to get the food. What we've been able to accomplish, and part of this is because Israel is small, as you mentioned, and has great weather all year round throughout the country, and it has a type of society where people have a can-do attitude and not everything gets stopped in its track by lawyers. So there are certain things that we do. So, for example, the mass work that we do, rescuing cooked food at night and by day, it almost doesn't happen in the United States. It really almost doesn't happen because everyone's afraid of food poisoning. Now, we're afraid of food poisoning also here, but we understand that if you went to a wedding and literally at 10 p.m., if you had ordered another piece of chicken, they would have brought it to you, and now it's 10, 15, and the wedding's over, what's wrong with that chicken? Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But in before we came into existence, in Israel also, that's not to get the food to heat home. And that's a shame because there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. So we've been able to do a lot of things in that field and as well in agriculture because of the weather, because we're small, because we get so many tourists who want to help. And we've just been able to, and because one other fact that's important, because the major population centers are still close to agriculture, we've been able to build this mass uh, program hosting so many volunteers in the States, for example, it would just be more difficult. Yes, within an hour of New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, there's farming, but the bulk, the big-time farming, is far from major population centers. So we actually have, you know, it's, it's hard to ever say that Israel being small is a good thing. This may be one of the only examples 
that actually exists where Israel being small is something beneficial. As someone who uh, once upon a time did army reserve service, Miluim, uh, I think one of the things that anyone who's listening, whoever did, you know, Miluim reserve service, how much food went to waste in the army? Uh, interesting, interesting enough, as I'm asking you this question, I'm, I'm thinking to, to my basic training when we were actually sort of hungry, there wasn't enough food. But, but, but once you got into the reserve, once you got into Miluim, oh, there was a great deal of waste. Now, the, I'm asking specifically about the army, but I guess I'm asking about, asking about the Israeli government, which is also a big consumer of, of food. Where are they in this? It's a very timely comment, and I'll harken back. You mentioned the television show that we all saw about food waste. Well, it seems, we don't know whom, but someone high up in the Israeli army saw that as well. And knowing what you know and knowing what all people who served in the army know, the army wastes, public institutions, but in this case the Israeli army, wastes staggering amounts of food. And let's let's not minimize that. That is your tax dollars. Your tax dollars going to buy food, which ends up in the garbage. But at the very least, let's make sure the food doesn't go in the garbage. So what we've been doing for the last 10 years is we've been, I wouldn't say battling, we're not that kind of an organization, but we've been talking to the Army, getting nowhere. And so what we've done is the basis that we've worked at, it was because we found a chef, we found a Hayala soldier, we found an individual who said, this is crazy, I'm going to make it happen. But that was all, you know... That was bottom-up, perhaps not even uh, something the Army would have agreed to if they knew about it. What's happened now is that someone saw that show, and someone did some work, and now the Army has contacted us and said, let's figure this problem out together. There's going to be growing pains, it's going to take time, and there's going to be legal agreements. But in large, uh, partially because of our pressure, partially because of others' pressure, partially because of this TV show, it seems the army in this country has made this decision. And you're going to be seeing, once it's figured out, absolutely staggering amounts of food. Okay. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me, and I also learned a lot. Uh, You've given my listeners some food for thought. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to thank Joseph Gittler. I hope to hear good things from you and uh, all your activities. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.